Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. For those of you who are married, I have a very personal and revealing question I'd like to ask you. If you were to lose your mate today because of death or divorce, would you have any regrets about your marriage? Perhaps you would look back to uh, an especially heated argument you had with your mate, and seeking to gain the upper hand, you reached for that dagger that you knew would cut deepest into your mate's heart. And although you used it, you felt bad afterwards, you tried to ask for forgiveness, and yet your marriage was never the same after that. Maybe you would think back on the qualities that first attracted to you to your mate that you spent the rest of your marriage trying to fix and correct. Maybe you would think about missed opportunities you had to spend time with your mate why were we enjoying such a great time in the mountains and felt like we had to rush back home so quickly? Or why is it we felt like that before we could take a walk together in the evening, every dish had to be cleaned and the house had to be spotless? Maybe as you look back at regrets in your marriage, your regrets would include an extramarital affair that changed the dynamics of your marriage forever. You know, grief is natural. If you, like many of you here listening to this message today, go through the loss of your mate through death, there's going to be grief that you can't be exempted from. But as a pastor for more than 40 years, I've seen that one thing that compounds grief is regrets, things you wish you had done differently in your marriage. I think about the story of Abraham in Genesis 23 Verses 1 and 2, we find what happened when his life partner died. Now, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Hebron in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went into the tomb to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. That word mourn in Hebrew means to beat one's breast. Abraham was filled with remorse as he contemplated the loss of his life partner of more than 60 years. Certainly much of that grief was understandable, but I think it was heightened by regrets Abraham had about his own marriage. I'm sure he thought back to that very hurtful experience he had with Hagar and what it did to their marriage. I'm sure he regretted the not one time, but two times that he put his own security above the security of his wife. He wished he could change those things, but he couldn't. Again, grief is a natural part of losing a mate. But one way to diminish that grief that many of us will face if we haven't already faced it 
is to make sure that we eliminate unnecessary regrets. And that's what we're going to talk about today. As we continue our series, Say Goodbye to Regret, we're going to look at what God's Word says about eliminating regrets about our marriage. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 19. Today, what I'd like us to do is to look at four biblical decisions we can make that will diminish the number of regrets we have about our most important relationship in life. Decision number one, the most foundational decision you can make to eliminate regrets in your marriage is this decision, I will not divorce my mate. I will not divorce my mate. Let me tell you from where I sit as a pastor what I've observed. Divorce and remarriage do not eliminate problems. They only change the problem. So many people would testify to the truth of that who have been divorced and remarried. I thought it was going to get rid of all of my problems. All I did was exchange problems. It's interesting that Dr. Alfred Kinsey, who's known for his study of human sexuality, came to that very same conclusion. After studying 6,000 marriages and 3,000 divorces, listen to what Dr. Alfred Kinsey said, there may be nothing more important in a marriage than a determination that it shall persist. With such a determination, individuals force themselves to adjust and to accept situations which would seem sufficient grounds for a breakup if continuation of the marriage were not the prime objective. In other words, if you make that decision ahead of time, you're not going to divorce. It forces you to learn to change and reshape redirect your marriage in a way that will keep it together. Now, before you send me any emails, I know what the Bible says. There are two exceptions to this. There are two allowances for divorce and remarriage. One is adultery, and the other is desertion of your mate. But remember, even in those circumstances, there's not a command to divorce. There's an allowance to divorce. And I believe the most foundational decision we can make in our marriage is, regardless of what happens, we're not going to divorce. Every time I conduct a marriage ceremony, the commitment I ask them to make is that they are going to remain together in spite of any circumstances that come their way. How do I know that's God's standard? Look at Matthew chapter 19. Verse 3 tells us that some of the Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, again, their motive was not pure, the Pharisees. They were trying to trap Jesus. And here's how. There was a controversy raging among the Jews about divorce and remarriage. Some people, some Jews, followed Hillel, the rabbi who taught that a person can divorce for any reason whatsoever. Other Jews followed the teaching of the rabbi Shammai, who said you can't divorce for any reason except adultery. So the Pharisees thought, we'll discredit Jesus with at least 50% of the people by making him take a position. Where do you stand on this subject of divorce? And listen to what Jesus said, beginning in verse 4. He answered them and said, 
have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus said, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What Jesus is saying is, the answer about divorce is real simple. When you go back to God's purpose for marriage and to the first marriage particularly, notice the three simple principles that Jesus teaches us about marriage in this passage. He says, first of all, marriage is uniquely designed by God. Every marriage is uniquely designed by God. Our mates are tailor-made by God to meet our needs. Look at verse 4, and Jesus answered and said, have you not read that the God who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, it would be real easy to get off track here and get into a gender discussion. That's a great passage to say there are not uh, three genders or four or one. There are two, male and female. But the gender of these words is not the primary emphasis. The primary emphasis is the number you find here. It's singular. God made them male, singular, and female, singular. One man and one woman. Not one man and multiple women, not one woman and multiple men, one man for one woman. Remember in Genesis 2.18, God said, it is not good for a man to be alone. After creating Adam, he said, you know, uh, everything is good except one thing. The only thing God said was not good in his creation was for a man to be alone. And therefore, he said, I will make a helper suitable for him. When talking about the creation of Eve, God said, I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. Well, look at that word helper. Now, some people say, there it is. The Bible is misogynistic. Treating women as nothing is but helpers for a man. See how outdated the Bible is? Look, not at all. That Hebrew word helper literally means savior. Did you know that? Woman is man's savior. Do I hear an amen on that? In fact, that word helper is used most frequently in the Old Testament to refer to God himself. God is man's helper. It's scary to think about a man stumbling around by himself through life. He needs God, but he needs a God creation, a woman, and that's why he created woman. I will make a helper, and then secondly, he said, suitable for him. That word suitable in Hebrew literally means opposite him. God means for our mate not to be a duplicate of us, but to be an opposite of us. So he created a female, one female, for this one man, Adam. And Genesis 2.22 says, therefore God fashioned a woman for him. That word fashioned in Hebrew is the word banah. Literally, he built a woman for the man. What does that mean for us? It means our mates, husband or wife, are tailor-made for us. If you're married, do you realize there is no person out there better to meet your need than the one God custom-made just for you? 
Jesus said marriage is uniquely designed by God. Secondly, he said marriage creates an unbreakable bond between a husband and wife. Look at verse 5. For this reason, he's quoting Genesis 2 now, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave. He shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That word cleave, to join, means to create an unbreakable bond between two people. It's the same word that's used in Ruth chapter 1 to describe the relationship between uh, Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Remember, Naomi had two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, and uh, all three of them lost their husbands. And Naomi, the mother-in-law, thought her daughters-in-law would naturally, now that they were widowed, want to go back to their homeland and find another husband. How did they respond? Look at Ruth 1, verse 14. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung, there's that word, to her. Orpah was ready to leave and go back to the home country, but not Ruth. Ruth said in verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. <laughs> Those of us who were married by Dr. Chris will recall these words because he used them at every wedding ceremony, the story of Ruth. Why? Because it's a picture of the marriage relationship. Wherever you go, I will go. How different that is from so many marriages today. A husband gets a transfer to a job his wife says, you think we're going to uproot our family just to go follow after you? We're staying right where we are. What a far cry that is from where you will go, I will go. Or a husband can't stand his wife's parents and says, I can't take this any longer. We're separating. Again, how different that is from your people shall be my people. This word cleave means to create an unbreakable bond. It's used, by the way, to describe our relationship to God himself. The Bible says we are to cleave unto God. Deuteronomy 10.20, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and you shall cleave to him, and you shall swear by his name. When we become a Christian, does God say, now I want you to love me and serve me with all of your heart, but if you find another God that you like better, you're free to go after him. That's unthinkable. No, God says we are in an unbreakable relationship. Now, that's exactly what marriage is. We are to cleave to our husband or to our wife. And the third truth you find in this passage in Matthew 19 is not only is every marriage designed by God, not only is marriage a creator of an unbreakable bond, but every marriage is orchestrated by God. Look at verse 6. And so, Jesus said, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. 
Genesis 2.22 tells us that after God fashioned Eve, God brought her to the man. God is the one who brings our mate into our lives. And by the way, that wasn't just talking about Adam and Eve. Moses is making a general principle. He says, a man shall leave his father and mother. Adam and Eve didn't have any mother or father. They were unique human beings. This is a principle for every marriage. God brings our mate unto our lives. God's the one who joins us together. Whenever I read that passage, I think about the unique set of circumstances that brought Amy and me together. In the summer of 1968, that seems like such a long time ago, but in the summer of 1968, Amy was living in Naperville, Illinois. Her father received an offer for a transfer. He had two choices. He could remain in Illinois or he could move to Dallas. He chose to move to Dallas. Amy's family could have lived anywhere in Dallas. They chose to live in Richardson. They could have had any house in Richardson. They chose to live on the street next to my street. They could have ended up in any number of schools. Instead, Amy ended up, because of where she lived, going to West Junior High School. There were several first period math classes in the seventh grade she could have been assigned to. She was assigned to my class, Ms. Denny's math class. There were 30 seats in the classroom. She ended up in the seat right in front of me. She could have had any number of combinations for seven periods of class. She ended up in every class of mine in the seventh grade, except Jim, of course. And she could have met many people on that first day. I was the first person that she met. Was that an accident? No, that was part of God's plan. And if you're married, by the way, God has a plan for you as well that brought your, your wife or your husband to you. In fact, one thing I encourage you to do, sometime just sit down with your mate and recall Recall over and over again the unique set of circumstances that brought you together. You say, what does all of this have to do with regrets? It's very simple. Jesus is saying, in light of the fact that God custom-made your mate for you, in light of the fact that you have entered into an unbreakable bond with your mate, in light of the, all the circumstances that God used to bring the two of you together, how could you ever think of dissolving that marriage that God has created? Again, the most foundational decision we can make in our marriage is we will not divorce. There's a second important decision we need to make if we're going to have a regret-free marriage, and that is... I will make my mate's happiness a priority. I will make my mate's happiness a priority. I read somewhere that only 17% of marriages can be categorized as truly happy. Why are there so many unhappy marriages? It's real simple. Whenever you have two people in a relationship trying to get their own way, you're going to have friction. And that's true of any relationship. It's true in the church. You know what the cause of most divisions in churches is? People wanting their own way. One group likes contemporary music. The other group likes traditional music. 
Some people think the pastor ought to preach doctrinal messages. Other people think he ought to preach application-oriented messages. Some people think it's too hot in the worship center. Other people think it's too cold. I mean, whenever you get groups of people fighting to have their own way, you're going to have friction, and that includes marriages. In James 4.1, the half-brother of Jesus writes, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your own pleasures, your own desires that wage war in your members? Well, if selfishness is the cause of conflict, what is the antidote to selfishness? Paul told us in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Interestingly, the context of this verse is a church schism going on in the church at Philippi. And he said, you've got to quit this. Instead, he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. And then he says, have the same attitude in yourselves that was in Christ Jesus. Why did Jesus leave the throne of heaven and come to earth and give himself as a sacrifice for our sins, not to meet his needs. He had no needs. He did it to meet our needs. He put our interests above his own. And that is the same attitude we're to have in every relationship, especially in our marriage. Make your mate's happiness a priority. A number of years ago, Amy and I were on a mission trip to New Jersey, and we had a day off. Uh, the sponsors had given everybody a day off on the mission trip. And so Amy said, I've got something I'd like to do on our day off. I used to live close to here in Berkeley Heights, New Jersey, and I'd like to spend the day going back and retracing where we used to live and the school I used to attend and the playground I used to play on. And I thought I'd rather have a hole in my head than traipse around some strange neighborhood in New Jersey uh, looking for past sites, but I quickly caught myself. I said, what a lousy husband you are. I mean, these things may not mean anything to me, but they mean everything to Amy. And what is of interest to her ought to be of what's interest to me. So we took a stroll down memory lane for the day, and we had a great time. I wish I could say I did that every time. I don't. But when we put our mate's interest above our own, here's the irony. Not only do we have a happier mate, we're happier as well. Whenever we put our interest ahead of our mates, they're not going to be happy we're not going to be happy. The key to happiness in marriage is unselfishness. Put the interest of your mate other ahead of yourself. I will commit to the happiness of my mate. Decision number three that is foundational to a regret-free marriage, I will refrain from using hurtful words with my mate. I will refrain from using hurtful words with my mate. I read somewhere that for every negative statement made to a family member, it takes four positive compliments to reverse the effect. I don't believe that. I don't think you ever reverse the effect of hurtful words. Hurtful words are like arrows that are 
shot into a door. You can remove the arrow, but the hole in that wood remains. And so it is with the words. You cannot erase the effects of hurtful words. In James 3, 6, we find the description of the power of the tongue. The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. It sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Just as a single spark can destroy an entire forest, a single misspoken sentence or word can destroy the spirit of a marriage. How do you keep from doing that? Listen to what the Word of God says is the filter through which we should pass our every word before we speak it. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it will give grace to hear it. The great Bible teacher, Alan J. Redpath, took this verse and created an acrostic using the word think for how we ought to judge our words that we speak, especially to our mate. The T in the acrostic, look on your outline, stands for true. Earlier in Ephesians 4, Paul said we ought to lay aside all falsehood. Before we say a word to our mate, especially an accusatory word, we ought to ask, is what I'm about to say really true? Is it really true that you never do anything to help around the house? Is it true to say, you always are finding fault with me? Before you say it, ask the word, is it really true? Secondly, is what I'm about to say helpful? Our goal ought to be to help, not hinder our mate. Thirdly, is it inspiring? Only words of edification should be spoken, Paul says. That word edify means to build up. Is what I'm saying going to build up or is it going to tear down my mate? Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? The N stands for necessary. Is it really necessary what I'm about to say? I have to learn this over and over again. Every thought doesn't have to be expressed. I don't have a need to verbalize everything I'm thinking. Is it necessary? And the K stands for kind. Is what I'm about to say kind? Do my words communicate grace or condemnation to our mate? Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. The fourth decision for a regret-free marriage is this. I will build memories with my mate, positive memories with my mate. An obviously happily married couple was once asked about the secret to their happy marriage. The husband spoke up quickly. He said, that's easy. We dine out twice a week, candlelight, violins, champagne, her night is Tuesday, mine is Thursday. <laughs> now, you know, the fact is some couples actually live that way. They live almost separate lives. Now, I'm not saying you have to do everything together as a couple. God made us differently. We're to complement, not duplicate our mate. Just because your mate involves, enjoys golf doesn't mean you have to enjoy swinging the nine iron. Your mate may enjoy opera. That doesn't mean you have to salivate over Madam Butterfly. We can be different, 
But let's not forget, the primary reason God created marriage was for companionship. We ought to be doing things together, building memories together. Ecclesiastes 9.9, Solomon had some good wisdom here. He said, enjoy life with the woman in whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. I see so many couples making a mistake here. So many couples just marking time with their mate, waiting for the kids to get out of diapers, waiting for the kids to go to school, waiting for their kids to graduate, waiting for their kids to get married, waiting for retirement to come, waiting for the mortgage to be paid off, waiting, 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 and one day they wake up and their life is just about over. Build memories with your mate now. Do you have a hobby you want to do together? Start it now. Is there a trip you want to take with your mate? Go ahead and take it now. Borrow the money if you have to. There is no guarantee that you're going to have tomorrow. Quit just marking time. Again, as a pastor for more than 40 years, I've seen many people lose their mate. There's nothing you can do to eliminate that grief that will occur. But I've also seen that those who are able to cope best with the loss of a mate are those who have a storehouse of pleasant memories to draw from after their mate is gone. Not long ago, I conducted a funeral service for a man who suddenly dropped dead of a heart attack after 50 years of marriage, and I stood at the head of the casket, as I always do at the end, and people paraded by to pay their respects. And the last person, as always, was the spouse. Now, I looked at this woman who had been married for 50 years, look into the face of her mate for the last time, and she began to sob uncontrollably. And I know I should have been thinking about her, but I couldn't help but ask myself the question, if when that happens to me, there's a 50-50 chance I'll be the surviving mate, when I say goodbye to my mate for the last time, how will I cope with that? How will I respond? How will you respond? Have you ever really thought about it? Again, grief is a necessary part of life. You're never going to eliminate it. But you can diminish the hurt of that grief by making these four commitments we've talked about today to have a regret-free marriage. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Maybe God has spoken to you as a Christian about some changes you need to make. Maybe it's that resolve that even though you've got a difficult marriage, you're going to keep that covenant you made with your mate and to God to remain together in spite of all circumstances. Maybe there's some habits you've gotten into that are hurtful, words that you need to stop using, forgiveness that you need to ask for. Maybe it's time for you to start putting your mate's interest above your own. Lord, help me to have that same attitude that Christ Jesus had, that he put 
our interest ahead of his own. Or maybe it's that decision of wisdom that you're going to start building good, positive, God-honoring memories with your mate. There are others of you here who are not yet Christians. And let me say to you, the Bible is very clear. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor, labor in vain. It's vanity to try to build a strong marriage without having the right foundation. And the foundation of any lasting marriage has to be a commitment to Jesus Christ. The forgiveness that Christ offers you today, regardless of how you may have failed in your marriage, that forgiveness is available to everyone who asks for it. And today, if you're not yet a Christian, if you don't have that assurance that you've been forgiven of your sins, I want to encourage you wherever you are to pray this prayer in your heart as I prayed out loud, knowing that God is listening to you. Would you pray this with me? Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know that I've failed you in many ways, and I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I've heard today, that you loved me so much, you sent your son, Jesus, to die for me, to take the punishment I deserve. And right now, I'm trusting in what Christ did for me, not in my good works, but in what Christ did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.